read the Bible. I think a lot of us, when we read the Bible, we conclude similarly the same thing we conclude when we used to watch. Now, I'm going to show my age here, but there used to be a TV show called Cribs. I don't have cable anymore. Is that still a show? Okay, so, so you, we watch Cribs, and like these super rich people would like show their houses with like 17 cars and like refrigerators full of like the most expensive drink, um, which is super unhealthy. Like they need water in there. But, but you remember Cribs, right? And we watch Cribs. I would watch Cribs and just conclude like, well, that's pretty awesome. Like I'm obviously never, that's never going to be me. But it's cool to watch. And I think some of us approach the Bible that way. Okay, so we read and we see like Paul and he talks about this joy that we can have. And we conclude like, oh, that's cool, that's neat, that's Paul. I, I, I could never have that. That's so far beyond anything I could ever have. And it's an incorrect conclusion. Um, the same power that Paul had is available to you and me. And the same joy and the same choice of joy is available uh, to you and me. Um, if you're visiting here or if you just haven't been here in a while, we're in the book of Philippians. And we're going through Philippians verse by verse. Um, and here's the deal. So that's called expository teaching. When you just go through every single uh, verse where we don't, we don't skip one. Um, we love that here at Hill City. We don't do that all the time, but we do love that. And that's what we're doing in Philippians. If you're in a city group... This will be a good time. You may want to take notes because um, AJ has actually been sending out uh, the discussion topics and the things that are going on in our city groups that are directly tied to Philippians and what is taught on a Sunday. Um, so this week in your city groups, you will be going over this passage that we're going to uh, talk about today. So we're in Philippians. Um, by way of review, let me kind of set the table a little bit just to catch us up. Um, Paul wrote Philippians. This is a, pr a prison epistle. So he wrote this while he was um, captured. Now, one thing that we have to make sure that we're clear on and make sure that we haven't been communicating incorrectly, um, Paul was actually on house arrest when he wrote this book. So it's not like he's in this deep, dark dungeon like he was back in Acts when the Philippian church originated. Um, he's actually on house arrest. Um, he was chained to a Roman soldier. Um, but he did have the freedom to preach the gospel. People could come to this house. He was renting a house, and people could come to the house, and he could preach uh, to them. So I just want to make that clear. Like, he wasn't just, like, in this dingy old jail cell. Um, and that's, that was his situation when he wrote Philippians. The overall theme of this book is joy and real joy. But it's also right thinking, and those things are directly correlated. Real joy and right thinking. Okay, um, the, the town of Philippi, the Philippian people, um, this was a military town, heavy, heavily popul populated by military families, military people. Um, here's, and we'll touch on this in a minute. Philippians loved being Philippians. And I'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to pick up today in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, I'm going to read this and then we'll, we'll dive in. We're really only getting in four verses today. So we'll pick up chapter 20 or verse 27. 
It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So last week Daniel uh, talked about, if you weren't here, Daniel talked about a uh, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Okay, and Paul chose this. This was a biblical decision that Paul made to live as Christ and to die is gain. And then he says, hey, I want to come see you again. But meanwhile, while you're waiting for me to come see you, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to have a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. Let's unpack this. So what does it mean, manner of life? Okay, your manner of life can be seen. Your manner of life can be heard. Your manner of life can be shown. Your manner of life is what people see, but it is also what goes on behind closed doors. Manner of life. He says, I want that to be worthy of the gospel. Now, when you hear worthy of the gospel, I hope your minds don't go to some place where you're like, okay, so I've got to work to earn Jesus. I've got to work to be worthy of Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. That word worthy there can be translated become or becoming, okay, which is also means to decorate and display something. To decorate and display the gospel. Now, we don't speak, like what I'm getting ready to do here, we don't speak like this in southwest Missouri, okay? At least the people I hang out with don't speak like this. Um, like we don't see someone who's dressed up and say, oh, hey, that dress is so becoming on you, right? Or, oh, you, you look so comely. Like, I, I, we don't speak that way. It sounds like something out of like Pride and Prejudice, which I've never, ever watched, but it would seem like that would be something that was out of pride and prejudice. Um, basically, what it means, though, is pleasing in appearance. It means attractive. It means fair. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, let your life be lived in such a way that the gospel looks like it's supposed to look. Worthy. Now, if you put that with manner of life, so think of it like this, a worthy manner of life. A worthy manner of life. Now, in the, in the original language, that speaks to conducting yourself as a citizen of a place. We see the same words. We don't have a slide for this, but in 1 Peter, if you're taking notes, 1 Peter 17, the exact same word that's used there in that passage says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, it says, Conduct yourselves. That's the exact same word we see in this passage with which says a worthy manner of life, okay? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. So it was mentioned to the Philippians. It would have been significant to the Philippians. It would have been a phrase that the Philippians would have keyed off of. Here's why. So back then, you would identify with your city more than anything else. Okay, more than your job, more than your major, 
more than your people group. You identified with your city. It was written by one writer that would say, a man without a city is not even a man. That was kind of how they thought back then. And the Philippians were proud of their city. Here is the best comparison I can draw for you. Is anybody in here from Texas? Right? Okay. Great. Um, <laughs> Texans love to be Texans, right? That, that's like, it's just real. Like, I've met a lot of guys and people from Texas, and maybe even um, girls would do this too. I'm sure they do from Texas. But, like, you're talking like Lone Star Flags. You're talking like Longhorn, right? You're talking about the actual state, the shape of the state of Texas. All these are like tattoos on Texans. All of them. I've, I have, I've not met one person that has a tattoo of Missouri. <laughs> Texas, a bunch. Because they love being Texans. That's the closest comparison I can draw to the Philippian people. They love being Philippians. Why do they love being Philippians? I'll tell you why, a little history lesson here. Which, side note, if you ever want to sit down with somebody and just talk history, Scott is a master historian. So if you have a back deck, good weather, invite Scott over. It's a fantastic time. Anyway, here's some history. In 42 B.C., Mark Antony's army defeated Brutus and Cassius. And Antony's army, they went out to war, and they fought bravely, they fought powerfully, they fought successfully, and the leadership awarded them a city. And that city was Philippi. Now, if you were here when I opened up this series, we talked about Philippi had, they were a city of Rome. They were nowhere, they were nowhere near Rome but they had all um, the rights of Romans, all the benefits of being a Roman. So one of them is like they didn't pay taxes at all. Uh, so, so things like that. They were a Roman colony, but they were a military colony. Um, so when Paul says, hey, I want you to conduct yourselves as a worthy citizen, like he went right to the heart of the Philippian. And when he says this, a Philippian would have immediately started thinking about their grandpa and their great-grandpa and their great-great-grandpa who fought with honor and they fought with bravery. And want to cause something to stir inside of the Philippians. And Paul says, that's good, I want you to live that way, but I don't want you to live a life worthy of a Philippian. He says, but rather, I want you to live a life worthy of Christ and his gospel. And, and, and it's great. You have your ancestors are your heroes of this battle. But Paul's looking at these people and he's saying, we have a new hero. And it's Jesus. And it's, it's Jesus who fought for us. It's Jesus who pushed and buried our shame. It's Jesus who died on the cross. And it's that that I want you to live worthy of. And it would have hit home for the Philippians. So here's what, here's what that means for us. Christians, talking to the Christians in the room, okay? 
our lives can poorly decorate and display the gospel. Or they can correctly decorate and display the gospel. So which is it? People should look at our lives. They should see what we have. They should see the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lives, and they should conclude, I want that. I need that, and I want that. Now, here's the deal. Hill, Hill City people, this is for Hill City. It's not for visitors. It's for Hill City people. This is for us, okay? Every week, every single week, there are people that come into this gathering, and they're disconnected. They're disconnected from church, they're disconnected from God, and they're back here for whatever reason. Maybe they're giving this a shot for the first time. Maybe they're giving this thing a shot for the last time. But they're here. And every week, God gives us the opportunity to decorate and display the gospel. And we can do that poorly, or we can do that correctly. Now, before I go any further, we got to talk about the gospel. What, what are we talking about when you say worthy of the gospel? What gospel? And maybe you've never heard this before, but this is for you. If you've never heard this before, and Christian, whether you've been saved for one day or whether you've been saved 90 years, this is for you. The gospel. And the gospel is this, that God, God is perfect, and he's holy, and he's just, and he's sinless. And he created all things, and he created all things for himself and for his glory. And then man, through Adam, decided one day that man's glory and man's ways were better than God's ways. And this perfect relationship that we had with God was fractured. And it was fractured because God is perfect and God is holy and God is just and he cannot allow anything or anyone to disparage his name. And you and I are born into this. We are born into this. So what we do just by being born is we fail to give him glory. We question his authority. We question his rule. And we sin. And the reality is God cannot, did not, will not allow it. And he will not spare his fury against it. And the reason he won't spare his fury is because he is just. And because he is holy. So here's what he did. He sent Jesus. He sent his son and he brutally killed him. And God pours out his wrath on his own son, Jesus. The wrath that was against us, he poured out on Jesus. And he killed him. But then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Bible teaches us that that same power that raised Jesus is like here at work among us and you and me right now. Same power. And here's the deal. You and I can now have a right standing before God. And it's not because we are good. 
And it's not because we work to get there. And it's not because of our effort. And it's not because we didn't cuss this week. And it's not because of what we drink and don't drink. And it's not because we go to church. We can stand before God, justified, right standing because of God and what God did by grace alone through the cross of Jesus Christ alone. You and I, we, are messed up. We can't fix anything. By grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus can and does fix us. And he doesn't do this one time. He does it over and over again, and that is the gospel. And the gospel is for people who are not believers, and the gospel is for people who are believers. And my question to you is, is your manner of life telling that story? That's what Paul meant when he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So when we hear worthy of the gospel, we don't want to draw like incorrect conclusions. People don't need to see us and think, oh, there's some people who have it all together. That's not what it means when it says worthy of the gospel. So if you're visiting here today, here's the deal. Um, every week we strive hard um, to make as much of Jesus as we can. That's, that's our goal and his gospel. Um, and we want to do that in our successes and we want to do that in our failures. We want to regularly rehearse the gospel. Um, so if you're visiting, I want you to know something. There are a lot of failures in this room. You're surrounded by failures. And first and foremost, starting up here with a guy talking to you. Whoever that guy is. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all so screwed up. And, and I hope you understand that. Visitors, I hope you understand that. Hill City people, I hope you understand that. That's why we sing songs like, the stanza of the verse, we sing it here a lot. We didn't sing it today, we sing it a lot. But I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That's all we have. That's all we have. So we don't want to pretend we have it all together because we don't. No one in this room does. And to pretend you have it all together is to walk unworthy of the gospel. So he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm. Standing firm. We're going to stop right there. That's a big phrase. Okay, now, I use, I use what some might say, some like uh, masculine language. Okay, um, I use words like war and warrior and fight and um, killer. 
I use those words a lot and always have when teaching uh, the Bible um, or just, just in conversation. Um, here's the deal. When I started vocational ministry, um, most of the people that I would minister to were in their 20s and 30s. Um, prior to vocational ministry, Jenny and I worked with college students and just primarily only college students. Okay, so dove into vocational ministry. Then I started ministering to some people that were in their 20s and 30s most often. Um, here was the sentiment. This is what I heard. Man, I'm sick of having to wear a mask. I'm sick of having to put a mask on pretending I have it all together. I'm sick of the need to be polished. I'm sick of fluff. I just can't do it anymore. That's what I heard. Now, why did I hear that? Because um, here's what I realized. When I was talking to people, I realized I was talking to wounded warriors. Like people who took a passage in First Peter seriously when it says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like I was talking to people who took that verse very seriously. Now, here's, here's something else I learned. Um, you know the people group that takes that verse probably the most seriously of any people group out there? Mamas. Like, mothers, we're done. And, and I'm just going to tell you, if you're visiting here, like the Ladiesville City, this is, a, this is pretty much how they feel. Um, like, tea parties and trinkets and rhyming poems, they don't have time for that. Because they believe there's a lion. A brutal, evil enemy. After your family and after your marriages your kids are in the crosshairs of an enemy there's a group of ladies in this church uh, right now and they're like prayerfully diving into some heavy theology why are they doing that because there's a lion and they don't have time for tea parties war be some slides up on the screen and my fear is that we see pictures like this and we're like oh yeah that's great right okay like those first two pictures that is not real like I know a lot of you I've been in your homes now Jenny and I we've got that down but I'm talking about you guys That's not real. And I've sat across too many tables talking with you guys. And this is what it is. This is what you're in. This is what our moms feel like. This is what our dads feel like. They understand that it's a war. And the sooner that we can realize this, the sooner that we realize that we are in a war, the better off we'll be. Now, dads, I don't want to pick on you. Just I, I'm not picking on dads. We have some solid men in this church, okay? But, but I do want to say this. If you're here because your wife kind of drug you to church, um, 
that you do not understand that you're in a war. And the sooner that our dads can realize they're in a war, the better our families will be. Side note, we have a marriage seminar next weekend. Some of you need to invest in your marriages. Like softball. And not just for you, you may have a neighbor. You may have friends. And you know their marriages are on the rocks. You want to bring them to this. It's war. Paul says, standing firm. It's the same language that he uses in Ephesians chapter 6, 11. Some of us will be familiar with this passage when he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. He's talking about a soldier. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against, standing firm, exact same word. It's a gutsy, bold word. Stand firm. And it's a progression. Now, if you remember, go back to what Daniel taught. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what Paul chose, right? So you're going to choose that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then you're going to choose to let your manner of life decorate and display the gospel above all else. Then here's what happens if you do those things. You will have the courage to stand firm when everything around you is unstable. So let me contrast standing firm. There's a group of guys that I meet with regularly, and we actually read through Proverbs, whatever day of the month it is. Like today's the 12th, we read Proverbs 12, okay? I've been studying for this for a while. So last Sunday, Proverbs 5, I was reading. So let me contrast standing firm with the whore who is written about in Proverbs 5, okay? The whore in Proverbs 5 is always wondering her ways Wonder. She's ever moving, which is a direct contrast to standing firm. Do you have the courage to stand firm? High school student, we've got some in here. Do you have the courage to stand firm? College student, do you have the courage? To stand firm. Employee. Do you have the courage to stand firm? Employer. Got a lot of you in here. Employer. Do you have the courage to stand firm? And here's the deal. Maybe you don't. And the reason you don't is you get, you got to go back. Remember, it's a progression. Maybe you haven't chosen to grab the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if you're having trouble standing firm, go back. Make the choice to live as Christ to die is gain, and then choose to decorate and display the gospel above all else, and then you're going to have the courage to stand firm. Then he goes on and says, and you stand firm with one mind and one spirit. One mind, one spirit. Now, it's a lowercase s. If you see there, it's a lowercase s. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about man's spirit. This is warrior talk. He's talking about man's spirit and people standing together as warriors, well-trained warriors in the day of battle. One mind, one spirit. The Philippian people would have understood this language. We can understand this language. We don't have to look too hard 
at history and see that history is full of rag, tag, peasant armies with no resources, making homemade weapons, but with one mind and one spirit together fight and go defeat a far superior army. It's all over history. One mind, one spirit. They stood firm, one mind, one spirit. They were full of courage, and here's the word of the day. They were unified. So what does that mean for us? Because I want to look at this. I want to look at it corporately, and I want to look at it individually. One mind, one spirit, unified. So corporately. Hill City. So here are our choices. If you are a Hill City regular attender or even covenant member, more importantly, here are our choices. Unity or dead church. That's it. Like seriously, like, like why and how do churches die? You ever think about that? Why and how do churches die? They start with passion. They start with belief. They start with energy. Like people willing to do whatever it takes. And then death comes. How does that? It makes no sense. Because Hill City, here's where we are, man. We're full of passion. We're new. We've got people, hey, whatever it takes, I'll be here at 630 in the morning to set up. Like that's us right now. But death comes with little drops of poisoning in statements like this. I don't really like how the music has been lately. I don't really like when Brad speaks. I don't really like setting up and tearing down anymore every Sunday. I don't really like our kids' check-in process. Other churches do it so much better. And there are little drops of poison that will lead to our death. When personal preferences become the priority in a church, its death is imminent. And here's what I'll tell you. I've said this before. I know it's kind of strong language. Um, we love you. Listen, Hill City, we love you. Um, we hope that you love us. We hope you love your church. We do not concern ourselves with whether or not you enjoyed the service. We don't even call it a service because that's not what it is. So if you're coming here and you kind of see this as like your Sunday concert or play to be consumed by a customer, then you're viewing this thing incorrectly. That's not what it is. We're here. and We aim to gather with one mind, with one spirit, unified. 
So three things we ultimately try to do here every Sunday, every gathering. Here's what we want to do. We want to make as much of Jesus as we can. We want to rehearse the gospel every single Sunday, and we want to be faithful to the word of God. Those three things. That's what we try to do every Sunday. Okay? So when you leave here each Sunday, you can just ask yourself, did we make much of Jesus today? Did we rehearse the gospel? Were they, were, were they faithful to the word of God? And if the answer to those questions is yes, when, when. So if on any given Sunday you walk in here, maybe there won't be one chair set up. Maybe nothing is up here and we got a guy with an accordion. Steve Urkel fans out there, you remember that guy? Maybe. Go with us. Unified. Because even if that's the case, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make much of Jesus. If we don't have one single chair in this place, we're going to rehearse the gospel, whether we got a microphone or not. And we're going to stay faithful to this book. Period. Go with us. So what does it mean individually? One mind, one spirit, unified. What does that mean for us individually? So we all have our own battlefields, right? Fair? Marriages, parenting, employment, just battlefields of our lives. Here's why I know. Some of you are ready to throw in the towel on some of those battlefields, like your white towel's in your hand and you're just about done. I can't do this anymore. I can't be with this guy anymore. I can't be with this girl anymore. I can't deal with this kid anymore. And you're about ready to throw in the towel. And I just want to bring to your attention Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Here's the deal. You may think your battle is against your spouse. You may think your battle is against your demon child. <laughs> Did I just say demon child out loud? <laughs> you may think your battle is against your boss. It isn't. Some of you got to take honest, long looks at your marriage, and you got to confess, man, we're not in this with one mind and one spirit. Some of you got to evaluate and take an honest look at your parenting and confess, man, we're, we are not raising these kids with one mind and with one spirit. Side note, um, your kids will see that. Um, this is a guy who has kids, but a guy who also spent 12 years in public education. Um, when you're not one mind and one spirit raising your kids, um, your kids, they're like sharks. They smell blood. And I'm telling you, they will see it, and they will play you both like a pawn shop guitar. I've seen it. Mom and Dad, the battlefield of parenting, one mind, one spirit, unified. 
This is our war. It says we need to fight it. And he actually goes on to say we need to fight it, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That side by side is the same word where we get our word athlete. And he goes on to verse 28. And this is huge. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened. This is a word that was used and is used to describe horses that were spooked, and they get spooked into stampeding. Now, we don't see, like, wild herds of horses around here, but if you might, if you hunt, you maybe have seen, like, deer, right? And they get spooked, and they, and they all run. Maybe that would be a better visual for you, but that's the word that's used right here. They get scared, and they run. Now, here's the deal with horses or, or deer or wherever. When they get spooked and they run, where are they going? <laughs> Heck if I know. You don't either. Who knows? They're just running. Just running scared. Is that you this morning? Has that been you? You're spooked, right? And then a Christian next to you gets scared. And then the next Christian next to you gets scared. Next thing you know, you've got a big group of frightened people running scared. They don't have a clue where they're going. Just trampling whatever's in their way. And some of you are like, man, I, I've never been spooked like scared, but I know this. I've been trampled by that group before. Me too. <laughs> Me too. But it's real. So I'm just going to give you some advice. Just kind of take this like some advice from a guy. Just a simple guy, some advice. Okay? Anytime you see just unusual movement or commotion, or things getting rowdy, just pause, take a breath, and avoid it. To give you a practical example, I hate to do this. Okay, listen, if you're a bit, we do not get political at this church. We've got people on both sides of the aisle, whatever, whatever. Okay, however, we're just coming out of a political season. So, so here, here's the deal. Let's go back to 2008, just to be fair. Let's go back to 2008. Um, here's what I saw. I saw people, like, freaking out. And then they freaked out again in 2012. And they're freaking out now. Just maybe a different group of people. And I'm talking Christians, like people who have a king. And it appeared to me, this is just me, it appeared to me that Christians seem to have less faith in what and in who they believe than any other people group out there when it comes to the political season. Like frightened horses run around not even knowing where they're going. That's not us. Paul says, don't be frightened. So to contrast that, you'll see a word in the Bible, sober-minded. That is a contrast to being frightened. All right, so I mentioned the First Peter 5, 8 passage. It says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because there's a lion. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Earlier in First Peter, in uh, Chapter 1, verse 13, and here's the context of that. He's telling, okay, first he's like, you're born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance that's imperishable. You 
will have various trials, but you get Christ, so we're all good. Because of all that, he says, now therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Again, who thinks your thoughts, right? Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. Christians, we have a hope that the world doesn't have. Do you believe that today? Do you really? Do you believe that? We have a hope that the world doesn't have. Don't be frightened. So typically, when you get in a room, and the most aggressive and the loudest and the most obnoxious person in the room, they're usually the biggest coward in the room. And it's totally rooted in insecurity and fear. But here's what Paul tells us. Don't be frightened at anything by your opponents. This, is, this will be a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. So here's what he's saying. When people see that you take a strong, confident, joyful Fearless stance, you win. Your opponent is beaten, and they know it. How do we know this? Go back to Paul. Okay? Last week, Daniel talked about to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul standing before a Roman court. And they're like, what do we do with this guy? Well, let's just let him go. He hasn't done much wrong. Great, I'm going to preach the gospel. A lot of people are going to come to know Christ. Well, can't have that. Okay, let's kill him. Paul, sweet, I get to be with Jesus. The news just keeps getting better. Okay, we don't want to do that. How about we keep you in prison? Cool, I'm going to convert anybody that comes in my path in this prison. Well, we won't do that. How about we just put you on house arrest and chain you to a Roman soldier? Paul, wait a minute. So, like, I get one guy, captive audience, all day long? Let's do it. He had an unstoppable mentality. Paul's opponents, man, we can't, we can't beat this guy. We can't get him down. Why? Because he took a strong, confident, joyful, fearless stance. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Here's the deal. Things are going to stink. Sometimes things are going to stink for you, for me. For all of us, okay? But here's what I don't want to wrongfully conclude, which I think we do in church sometimes. Let's not wrongfully conclude that only Christians suffer. Lost people suffer and endure suffering all the time. The difference is that you and I know and choose to know that there's a purpose in our suffering. What's that purpose? We suffer for his sake. And maybe that's you this morning. Suffering a little bit. Well, you choose that your suffering is for his sake. It's a choice. Christian, know this. You are not just mindlessly suffering. Because like the fate of the universe has it against you. That's an unbiblical conclusion. God is in it. So if that's you this morning, God is in it. And he doesn't waste a suffering, so you don't waste one. 
verse 30, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. The same conflict. What conflict is Paul talking about? This one, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Man, I want to go see Jesus. I want to be with Christ, but yet I can, I can get some stuff done here. Yeah, but I want to go be with Christ. Yeah, but i got to preach the gospel. I want to get stuff done here. And that's the conflict that Paul finds himself in. And to live means you will eventually suffer some. So you could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. You could say to suffer is Christ, and to die is Jesus. So fill in whatever your suffering might be this morning. To endure this horrible job is Christ. And dying is gaining Jesus. To be single and not want to be single and want a spouse but not getting one is Christ. And to die is gaining Jesus. To want to be a dad or a mom but not get a baby is Christ. And if I die without ever being a mom and daddy, I get Jesus. So what's your manner of life? As we conclude, Ben, you guys can go ahead and come on up here. But what's your manner of life? Just evaluate this um, quickly. Is it whiny, fearful, complaining, worry-filled, manner of life is it a confident standing firm sound mind encouraging unifier manner of life because I want to tell you something Hill City we will be unified or we will die another question I want you to think about what is in your life that keeps you from decorating and declaring the gospel. And will you make up your mind to lay that aside? So we're going to receive communion. Um, and as we do, I want us to reflect on this. Okay? Let's reflect on that phrase, worthy of the gospel. And I just want to ask the believers in the room. Have we gotten over the cross? You know, I mean, we come in here every week, we do this, but are we, have we gotten over the cross of Jesus Christ? Because I'm guilty. I'm guilty sometimes. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that our people will make a choice to live a life worthy of the gospel. God, I pray that our people will make a choice to be unified. God, the only way we can do that is if we keep our eyes on you, keep our eyes on the cross. God, may we never get over the cross and what you did there. In Jesus' name I pray.